This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We promised on last week's show we'd be talking about science and miscellaneous fun stuff, and uh, in particular, the trip I was fortunate enough to take here to Australia during the month of November. So let's get right down to it, starting with the means by which we normally begin this program, that is to say, on this date in history. Our date in question is the 13th of December. It was on December 13th in 1577 that Francis Drake set out from Plymouth in England with five ships and 164 men on a mission to raid Spanish holdings on the Pacific coast of the New World and explore the Pacific Ocean. Three years later, Drake's return marked the first circumnavigation of the Earth by a British explorer. I gather his raiding of the Spanish was pretty successful, and the profit he made from the voyage astounded them. And, of course, the Queen got her cut. And it was on December 13th in 1642 that the Dutch navigator Abel Tasman became the first European explorer to sight the South Pacific Island group, now known as New Zealand. A little bit earlier, on November 24th, Tasman had discovered Tasmania off the coast of Australia. And you have to ask, geez, what are the odds of that? And on this date in 1847, Ellis Bell's novel, Wuthering Heights, was published. Bell was the pseudonym used by the English author Emily Bronte. On December 13th in 1910, 102 years ago, American radio pioneer Lee DeForest arranged the first opera broadcast. Although few people had radio receivers, DeForest arranged four broadcasts from the stage of the New York City's Metropolitan Opera, featuring none other than Enrico Caruso. And on December 13th, 1928, the New York Philharmonic, playing at Carnegie Hall, debuted George Gershwin's An American in Paris, which along with such things as Rhapsody in Blue and tunes like Someone to Watch Over Me are just, just about as good as music gets. Of course, that's just my opinion, and this might be a good time to note early in the show that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But I tell you right now, if any of them say Gershwin wasn't any good, they're just all wrong. Our quote today comes from playwright Joe Orton, who said, The kind of people who always go on about whether a thing is in good taste, invariably have very bad taste. Which might provide some inspiration to talk a bit about the Book of Mormon, which I saw last weekend. We'll defer that discussion. Our quip of the day comes from another playwright, the immortal Oscar Wilde, who once said, True friends stab you in the front. Our joke of the day, and this one was sent to us by Gary, is as follows. An Italian lady visited her son Tony for the weekend. He lives with a female roommate, Maria. His mother immediately saw that Maria was very attractive. Over the weekend, while watching them together, she knew there was more between Tony and Maria than they admitted. Reading his mom's thoughts, Tony volunteered, I know what she must be thinking, Mama, but I assure you, Maria and I are just roommates. A few days later, Maria said, 
You know, Tony, ever since your mother was here, I can't find the silver sugar bowl. You don't suppose she took it, do you? Well, I doubt it, said Tony, but I'll email her just to make sure. So he wrote, Dear Mama, I'm not saying you took the sugar bowl from my home or that you didn't take it, but it's been missing ever since you were here. Your loving son, Tony. The next day, Mama wrote back, Dear Tony, I'm not saying you sleep with Maria, and I'm not saying you don't sleep with her, but if she is sleeping in her bed, she would have found the sugar bowl by now. Our stats of the day are as follows. According to the Washington Post, Americans are moving overseas to find work. Some 6.3 million U.S. citizens are now studying or working abroad, the highest number ever recorded. And according to the New York Post, American men are weighing in at an average of 196 pounds, 16 pounds more than in 1990. That's according to a new Gallup survey. The average weight for women has jumped 14 pounds to 156 over the same period. Gallup estimates that 62% of Americans are either overweight or obese. Let's do a few bonus stats on today's program, coming from Discover Magazine's 20 Things You Didn't Know About The End. Note of the piece by Jonathan Keats. In reality, this year, December 21st, the much-touted end of the world, is actually the date on which the Mayans 1,800,000 day-long long count calendar is set to roll over, kind of like the Gregorian year 1000. Noted Keats, remember how the world ended then? Exactly. Peace also noted that it was Baptist preacher William Miller, who, seeing through the Bible darkly, convinced 50,000 New Englanders that the rapture would happen on March 21st, 1844. Mm. And, of course, more recently, Harold Camping, the Nigerian Oakland broadcaster, was also mistaken uh, when he announced that the Bible was going to predict the end of the world on May 21st, 2011. Of course, he got it wrong twice that year. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm six months off. But uh, this piece also notes that uh, there are rumors continuing to circulate today about a Russian doomsday machine. Supposedly, if Russia was nuked, it would automatically launch a retaliatory nuclear strike, to which we say, holy Dr. Strangelove. And I have to chuckle thinking of the the immortal George C. Scott's line as General Buck Turgenson, having heard about a purported doomsday Soviet machine, he comments at one point, geez, wish we had one of them doomsday devices. And if by chance, dear listener, you've never seen Dr. Strange Love, just drop what you're doing. Well, as soon as this show's over with, drop what you're doing and, and go rent it. It's not often you, you can cite a movie that clearly was 50 years ahead of its time, but uh, that's one. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week, at least on the week of December 2nd, for New York City, because reportedly on that Monday, not a single person was reported shot, stabbed, 
or murdered. Marking the first time police officials can remember recording no such crimes over a 24-hour period. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the motto to serve and protect in the wake of a Florida man being tasered by police for turning a water hose on his neighbor's house fire. Yes, apparently Dan Jensen, age 42, complied when police ordered him to put down his garden hose. But as the fire came near his fence with no fire trucks in sight, he turned the hose back on again and was promptly tasered. Said Jensen of the police, I thought they were here to help me. Instead, they hurt me. And it was an ugly week a few weeks back for nativity scenes in the wake of Pope Benedict XVI saying in his new book that there were no oxen, donkeys, or other animals at Jesus' birth. The Pope also now says the entire Christian calendar is based on a 6th century monk's miscalculation of when Jesus was born. This does remind this correspondent of a story about the early years of Jesus' life, the time in which he came upon the moneylenders of the temple. As is well known, the young Jesus was outraged by the scene and cast out the moneylenders, overturning their tables and causing quite a commotion. What isn't so well known is that there was an elderly Jewish man in the front of the temple at that time, who looked back and observing all the light streaming in and the dust pouring in off the street, shouted, Jesus, would you shut the door? What, were you born in a barn? Sorry, folks, just couldn't resist that one. Let's do a few more of these, though, in terms of good, bad, and ugly. We should note that it was a good week uh, one day last week when somebody tallied it up and realized that laws prohibiting smoking in bars, restaurants, and workplaces are now on the books in 30 of the 50 largest U.S. cities, whereas as recently as the year 2000, only one city, that would be our own San Jose, had such a ban. It's good to realize sometimes that we are making progress, especially when, like this correspondent, you just got back from Asia, where seemingly just about everyone whose mail is chain-smoking. But uh, yeah, let's do a few more. It was a bad week in late November for the separation of church and state with news that an Oklahoma teenager whose drunk driving led to the death of a friend was sentenced to attend church for 10 years. Tyler Arid, 17, pled guilty to manslaughter after the crash that killed his passenger, John Dumb. The judge set church attendance as a condition for Arid to avoid prison. Said Arid's lawyer, my client goes to church every Sunday. That isn't going to be a problem. I'm not sure how that would have worked out for Mansour Abbas or Shlomo Goldman. But I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on that judge, eh? And uh, it was kind of a bad and ugly week for telling it like it is two weeks ago with the following story. Apparently a convicted marijuana dealer in Ohio uh, damaged his chance at a lenient sentence when, at a hearing before Judge Melba Marsh, Domain Mitchell was told by the judge he could avoid jail if he entered a drug treatment program and agreed to give up smoking marijuana. Apparently Mitchell then mused aloud, That's going to be hard for me to do. Then asked Judge Marsh if she could just let him get one more joint in. The visibly irritated judge said no and set a date for sentencing. All right, and from the completely out of left field category, we have the following item. 
which I think I'll just read verbatim from the week. A German woman is accused of trying to kill her boyfriend by smothering him with her 38 double D breasts. Franziska Hansen, age 33, was allegedly upset that boyfriend Tim Schmidt was planning to leave her. While the couple were in bed, Schmidt said she grabbed my head and pushed it between her breasts with all her force. I couldn't breathe anymore. I thought I was going to die. Schmidt claims Hansen later confessed, saying, I wanted your death to be as pleasurable as possible. Which does remind us of the crack Woody Allen made when asked how it is he would like to commit suicide. Said Woody, well, if I had to do it, I guess I would choose to be smothered by the flesh of an Italian actress. All right, item number two from the completely out of left field file. We have a piece which I got from the Destination Vanuatu Freebie Magazine, obtained while in the island republic of Vanuatu, known during World War II as the New Hebrides. The islands are apparently jointly administered by France and England. And in fact, when you go to Port Vila, the capital, the place where I saw the U.S. election results, my tour guide at one point pointed out that, well, the French live here and the British live here. I found it rather in- incredible that there was a dividing line between the English and the French on a, uh, an island out in the South Pacific, but there is. I did conclude from reading this, this uh, magazine, which unfortunately was all in, in French, I guess I should clarify, reading as best I could, since I don't really read French. Then it came to inventing the island's pigeon, that uh, clearly the English contribution to it dominated the French. For example, here's how you translate various French phrases into pigeon. Example, bonjour, it translates to good morning. S'il vous plaît, translates as please. The phrase merci beaucoup translates to thank you, Thomas. The question combien translates to Hamas. Also, how much is judged acceptable? And my personal favorite, which is used in advertising, je vu, in pigeon comes out as me wantum, as in the ad for <laughs> the local beer, Tusker, which is simply me wantum Tusker. Actually, no, no, I think I have to say, on review, upon further review, my all-time favorite is, the, is au revoir, which translate into pigeon as, look em you back again. All right, we got a few minutes left in our first segment. I think I want to round up with some miscellaneous items we may or may not have touched on before. We talked last week with Pamela Taylor about issues on the Great Barrier Reef, and I did find the piece from New Scientist magazine stating as follows, nutrient-rich slurry from farms has been causing coral populations on Australia's Barrier Reef to crash for 90 years. The corals collapsed between the 1920s and the 1950s, according to the University of Queensland. This is based on some uh, cores the researchers took from three reefs to work out when the corals had died. Two had little coral left after the 1950s, while the third had been colonized since then by different types. Not coincidentally, by the 1920s, European settlers were farming intensively near rivers flowing into the reef, boosting agriculture runoff by as much as a factor of 20 we should note, too, that uh, we've gotten a report from uh, Joseph over on uh, the island of Kauai that they're having great issues with the coral on the north side of that island. Uh, apparently, it's being attacked by a disease. 
Issues of coral death and health are, I think, of concern to all of us, or should be. We're going to try and tackle that a little more depth uh, in the weeks to come. Hopefully with uh, Pamela's help uh, from down under, because she does know some people that are doing some interesting research. She just is not quite uh, free to talk about yet. In the wake of years truly flying to various airports throughout the South Pacific and, and basically the Pacific Rim, I want to say, coming back to read a piece in the Sacramento Bee about the rabbit at our disgrace of an airport left me, oh, I don't know, dismayed. The Bee was reprinting a piece from Sacktown Magazine by Rob Turner, in which Mr. Turner is trying to strike a jaunty pose about things like the rabbit and other public art. And I'm sorry, I just can't resist quoting from it. Most cities our size or larger possess a visual vocabulary that is largely determined by their skyline or geography. San Francisco, for example, in addition to some iconic skyscrapers, has a largely unrivaled geographic identity marked by the mountains, the ocean, the bay, and the fog. In other less geographically endowed cities, distinctive structures like the St. Louis Gateway Arch or New York's Empire State Building, etc., frequently double as massive works of public art, giving their respective skylines an instantly recognizable civic brand. He goes on, As physically beautiful as the Sacramento region is, with its abundant trees, majestic rivers, and colorful patchwork of richly textured agricultural fields, its geographical grandeur is best appreciated from the air. Ow! And while our downtown plays home to some fine buildings, our skyline still lacks the distinctive iconography that can lend us a sense of place that we need to compete against other cities for people, companies, conventions, and tourists. Quite simply, we need some visual panache for our urban landscapes and large-scale public art is just the ticket. Well, Mr. Turner, I have to say that if we're going to depend upon large, red, leaping rabbits inside of our airports to give Sacramento a leg up in the competition for people, companies, conventions, and tourists, we are in a hell of a lot of trouble. Anyway, I can't say as I know much about art, but I know what I don't like. Speaking of the artsy touch, you may have noted that UC, the University of California, has now come up with a new logo. Yes, after 144 years with the same logo, UC's decided it's time for a new, more modern look. So instead of the old seal that says University of California around the rim with an open book and a Latin phrase and 1868 in the bottom, we now have basically a blue shield that vaguely looks like a U with a C in the middle of it that starts out yellow and winds up green. All I can say is I hope they didn't pay a lot for that. I want to actually run this past Mr. Marillon, who, who is a bit of an artist. What do you think, sir? My taste runs towards the previous seal. And we talked a couple years ago about this issue about how uh, we shouldn't eat horses in America. We actually passed a ballot measure in California that would have made it illegal. I guess it's still in the books. I don't know. They can ship the horses elsewhere. I don't know. But how about this story? Apparently, Canada and Mexico uh, have given warnings to their meat packers that, uh, well, they may want to be cautious about slaughtering American horses because they're full of drugs. In fact, the Europeans consider that the meat of American racehorses may be too toxic to eat safely because the horses have been injected repeatedly with numerous drugs. That's a pretty sad commentary. And indeed, last October, 
General manager of a major slaughterhouse in Quebec said he turned away truckloads of horses coming from America because his clients were worried about potential drug issues. Technically, horses being shipped to Mexico and Canada are by law required to have been free of certain drugs for six months before being slaughtered, and uh, their shipping must have affidavits proving that, but European Commission officials say affidavits are easily falsified. Piece in the New York Times notes that because horses are not a traditional food source in this country, the FDA does not require human food safety information as it considers what drugs can be used legally on horses. Now let's end on something a little bit happier. Um, there will be another eclipse in Australia, oddly enough, come next May. And by coincidence, its path will be not so far from uh, last month's eclipse. Now, an annular eclipse, like the one we reported on from Reading last spring, is not as spectacular as a total, but still a pretty cool thing. And we hope that uh, our Australian correspondent, Pamela, will be on the case for us on that one. Although if you want to increase your odds of seeing it, Pamela and others, you may have to go out more to the center of the country, north of Alice Springs, somewhere between the towns of Banka Banka and Tennant Creek, where your chances of seeing it due to weather are the best. And yes, if you're going to make that trip down to Australia, you'll we'll, we'll be not too far from, uh, from Ayers Rock, which is itself uh, southwest of the Alice, which is how they affectionately refer to Alice Springs down there. Anyway, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll come back and talk science and travel. Mm-hmm.